My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior Army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week, Clint Emerson, Navy SEAL, author, spy, just an all-around badass. Let's welcome him into the studio. Clint, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. That, yeah, that absolutely. Intro is, uh, that's nice. Real nice. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're so welcome. So I, I want to get right into this because like I told you before, there's a lot to unpack in this. And um, I want to start with your book, The Right Kind of Crazy. Um, you took this book on and everything that I've read in it. And it seems like you kind of just wanted to put out your story. Uh, I've heard you in a couple other interviews say it's not really about other guys. It's about your kind of journey through life. Um, what gave you this idea? Was it that you saw a lot of people writing books or you thought that this story needed to be there for posterity? Or what What, what was it that, that brought you to that? Um, I mean, honestly, the... Uh the, my editor, after 100 Deadly Skills success, he was like, dude, you should do a memoir. you got great stories to tell. And I was like, no, I don't want to do a memoir. And he's like, no, really, you should do a memoir. We'll write you a pretty good check. And I'm like, okay, well, how much? <laughs> so, and, and then uh, <laughs> the uh, negotiations began. But I had warned him ahead of time, like, look, man, this is uh, – it's if I do it, I'm not going to sit here and tell war stories and all that crap if – you know, I want to, you know, I knew that if I did something like that, it would have to be very human. It would have to humanize um, who we are, because I feel like a lot of guys fall in to um, pushing the myth. And the reality is, is there is no myth. And so I, uh, I wanted people to see that, oh, OK, this guy is a mediocre guy, mediocre athlete, mediocre um, but if you've got enough passion and you got enough heart and drive, you can, uh, you can pretty much push through anything. And so, um, and, you know, and, and I did have to put some, cause if you want to tell a story, uh, you sometimes have to lay down the groundwork of where you're at and what you're doing. So there's instances where, you know, we're on a battlefield or I'm overseas doing something, but the goal was to pinpoints an error or something funny or a mishap, you know, um, or an ambush, you know? So there was, um, a lot of stuff that actually ended up getting redacted once, you know, once it was sent to the Pentagon, um, people who've read the book, you can pretty much take, if there was one page redacted, that's equivalent to actually 10 pages. Oh, wow. We just didn't want to fill you know, we cut the pages out because that would have really upset the readers. So it was a roughly almost a hundred pages were redacted by the Pentagon. And that was just like me touching on some stuff. It wasn't even like, I don't think it was anything sensitive or classified. It was all very subjective, you know, and that really was because of other guys who put books together and, 
didn't get them reviewed. So they kind of take it out on the guys that are doing the right thing to kind of a certain degree. <laughs> so anyway, you seem pretty happy about all the redactions in there, not only in the print book, but also in the audio book, which you narrate. So uh, you seemed very happy at yeah. the redacted pages. Um, I, I want to talk about yeah. that. So you, you bring that point up where you didn't want to do a memoir. You pointed out some guys that have maybe done it the wrong way, maybe done some things. There was a recent news um, story, I think, on CBS where they talked to some active duty and some prior uh, Navy SEALs that were saying that they kind of wanted all this to go away. They didn't want people talking about it, and they didn't want any more books written. They didn't want any more movies. What is your thoughts on that? Because I think you you yourself ride that line very well of not being boastful about it, not trying to really cash in on it, but letting people know that you know what you're talking about. Yeah, it is it is tough because you you want to maintain the respect of your peers and, you know, a community that you devoted for me, it was, you know, 20 plus years. So um but I also, I mean, so first I was one of the guys in the squadron space that would see or hear about, you know, a, a team guy that gets out and, you know, does something Hollywood or a book or whatever. And I was motherfucking that guy all day long. Um, but then I got out and, you know, you get presented a whole lot of stuff that it's, uh, that, that boils down to your future. And so, Uncle Sam isn't going to look out for your future. The, the guys that, you know, want to uh, talk trash about you are not going to look out for your future. No one's looking out for your future except for you. And so you have to, like, make that decision. You know, how do you want your future to look and what are you going to do? And so I tried to um, be very gentle with a lot of my decisions and make sure that, they fulfilled what I wanted to do and who I wanted to become, because if we all live long enough, you know, that service to America is going to be a quarter of my life, you know, or, or less, hopefully. Um, and so you got to create your new, a new identity and, and, um, and, you know, make some things happen for yourself. And so when it came to books, I was against them. Uh, but when I was presented a more logical approach, like, Hey, you don't have to do, you know, a book, a tell-all, um, you don't have to do anything that pushes, you know, either your personal limits or the limits of the community. Um, you can, you can do something cool and fun. Um, and, you know, and let it help with your branding. And that's what it boiled down to is like, you know, a book is the best marketing platform you could ever do that you don't have to pay for. And in fact, you get paid. And so, you know, once it was kind of presented in logical, rational manner, you know, you start to you tend to start to forget about all of the, the what really boils down to reputation management for a community that you don't belong to anymore. You know, and so that's it. It's still it's still to this day will bug me from time to time. You know, but right. um, you know, it's you don't want to, you know, be that guy. Uh, but the reality is, is there was a lot of guys that did it before me and there's going to be a lot of guys that do it after me. Um, and I just try to make sure I stay in the lane of 
emergency preparedness, crisis management, and giving people good skills um, that can hopefully, you know, get them out of a bad situation. And so that was the lane I decided to stay in. And of course, you're going to leverage your 20 years for credibility, but that's about it. And then once you create your new identity, then you just drive on with it, you know? So now I don't really look back at all that and worry about it. But when I was first getting out, I was, I, you know, I had a hard time with it. Um, but now it's five, six years later and I'm like, okay, you know, it's, I'm, uh, I'm not doing anything wrong, but you sure feel like it at first. Well, and you kind of point that out in the beginning of your book where you say the, the guys that make coffee make fun of the guys that write the book and the guys that write the book make fun of the guys that do the podcast. And and then you kind of end that whole statement by, and fuck all those guys. I don't care what they think about what I'm doing. Uh, it, that must be a yeah. huge step to take, though. I mean, you dedicated 20 years of your life. Like I said, I was in the military. I'm in law enforcement. And that's a big step to take to go, look, I know I was family with you guys, but fuck it. I got to do what I got to do. And just kind of take yeah. what may come from that community. And and usually, usually that's not a good thing that comes from the community. Right. It's... um. You know, the, here's the thing. The guys that have a big enough voice are already doing what you're doing and, and probably more. Right. So it, you know, I'm talking when you when you talk about social media and all that, if they have a big enough following to uh, say something and the reality is they're already doing whatever it is they're bitching about somebody else doing. But uh, but once again, I've pointed out in the book, our, our community is kind of like. You know, you're going to always, no matter what you're doing, you're going to have half the guys that love you and half the guys that don't like you. Um, but you'll still take care of one another in a heartbeat, you know, and it's it's just kind of the nature of the beast. I used to tell people all the time that if you hang out in a, uh, you know, behind a fence line full of sharks, you're going to get bit eventually. It's just the way it is. You know, everyone's very alpha. Um, you know, they're in a job where it's required. Um and we all voice our opinions about what we like and, and especially what we don't like. So, you know, you just, uh, you can, all, you can't make everybody happy. And you, at the end of the day, you still got to look out for you because none of them are going to, and that's probably the biggest takeaway. And I do get asked a lot, to, you know, to kind of sum it up is the whole quiet professional and silent warrior and all that. But I, I tend to tell people these days, like I was the quiet professional but I was getting paid to be the quiet professional. And then when it's time to leave, you're on your own. You know, it's, uh, they give you a little, I, I always tell people it's symbolic in the ID cards, right? You hand in <laughs> this, this thick, beautiful card, this CAC card that has a computer chip on it yep. and a colored picture of you. And you hand that in. And then what do they do? They, they give you this cheesy 1970s laminated, blue card with you can't even tell that it's me the picture is so bad that is representation of your 20 years you know and uh and so if they're putting that much effort into the id card you know then i'm like well maybe uh maybe i shouldn't worry so much about <laughs> about what they think you know right, right. you know i i i think that uh I think another point of that is that, you know, how you said that guys that are complaining about are already kind of doing it. But I also think there's kind of that, 
hate me because they ain't me mentality. Like they don't have anything brewing in the witch's cauldron. And so they're just going to snipe everything they can to bring you back to kind of their level. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's human nature. You know, it's usually ego and, you know, that that rules, right? It, it, it either makes you do the it makes you do the worst things and it makes you do great things. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely probably some of that. I have to say, though, personally, as much as I think about it and it used to like bug me my first couple of years out. I've never really had any issues with it. I know guys that have caught a lot of shit from people. Um, but I guess it's kind of an, you know, you know, it just depends. It depends on the guy, depends on what he's doing, you know? And, uh, I, um, I try to stay somewhat conscious of that kind of stuff, you know, with everything I've been, been doing. So hopefully, you know, if they don't like me, that's okay. <laughs> I'll still, I'll still help them out if they need it. <laughs> right. Well, let, let's get into the book. Um, and the first thing that, that, stood out to this book and by the way excellent book um it's hilarious how you narrate it. i don't think anyone else could have narrated it as you narrated it it's a very dry sense of humor and it kind of pushes the points through that i don't think a lot of other people could the the thing that stood out to me and i think the most interesting part of the book to me was your dad um and yeah. the story of that is is crazy in and of itself but then you tack in the race car driving and your little brother coming to live with you and the sudden um, on on um, oncoming of death with your father and everything like that. If you could uh, talk about your father for what would you say about him? Oh, man, he. um I mean, to this day, still the smartest, the smartest guy I've ever known. Um, you know, he is, he is like trivial pursuit, right? Remember that game? Absolutely. Like he is that guy. Like he, he, um, he, you take any box of those cards and he'll already know all the answers. I mean, he it used to be our entire family versus my dad. <laughs> playing trivial pursuit you're talking a dozen or more brains versus his and he would still crush us at that damn game um but just you know such a well-rounded guy um in every aspect but you know but you would never know it i mean he was just a all-around good guy with the same kind of dry sense of humor that i inherited from him and uh but he was also you know it wasn't until I got older that you start to kind of really see your parents, you know? Um, and it's unfortunate because I just started to see him as like, Oh, this guy's kind of been around the block a couple of times with some shit, you know? And, um, after seal training, I remember him telling, you know, kind of alluding to certain things like we're going to have to sit down and chat, you know, someday. <laughs> but, uh, we just, you know, we never got to that point where he could uh, tell the stories that he had to tell. So he was, he was a bit, if, if I had to sum him up, I mean, one of the smartest guys I know that was still bit of a mystery to me. I, I think the, the best part about him is, is that's your stepdad, but he always right. treated you as his son. And there were numerous points just inside the book. So I'm sure there were many others on the side 
that he could have walked away and been like, I washed my hands of this. And he never stepped away from you ever. And he always made sure you, he always made sure you had that rock there. Yeah, no, he, I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I'm a divorce guy. Right. And, uh, now I can really put myself in his shoes to a certain degree for a, a kid in, college you know working full-time full-time student then to take on this woman and her kid you know and at the time i was probably two or three years old um and just kind of go all in like that i mean dudes don't do that anymore (laughs) you know so it's uh it's a different world and it's a super honorable trait about him that you know, I definitely admire, um, both as now a grown up guy, you know, divorced man. And then also even once I found out as a kid and as you get older and older as a kid, you start to realize, wow, I mean, this guy, he doesn't have to do the things that he does for me. You know, right. he didn't have to do anything. Um, just, uh, probably one of the, the funniest one of, I think I put it in the book, you know, it, the uh, great story. My mom, you know, she was a bit of a troublemaker. And so, you know, when they were first dating, she didn't tell him about me. Right. Right. And so anytime he'd come over to her apartment, there wasn't anything that suggested she had a child and she'd take the pictures down. She'd hide the toys. She would go through great lengths so that she could keep this man in her life. And then finally one day she's kind of like, you know, I got to tell you something. He's like, what? Like, I, I have a son. And he's like, don't you, I, I know that I've seen you driving around town with a car seat in your car. And, uh, you know, this kid in your car, I mean, it's a small town. It's, you know, at the time Denton wasn't that big. Right. And so, you know, and he worked at that, uh, that howdy duty that just closed down all the way up until about probably a year ago. And, uh, she would come in and, work him over and of course he fell for it <laughs> and so but yeah he she tried to she tried to snow him on uh not having kids and then when he when she finally fessed up he was like yeah i know i've seen you around town a bunch of times with a kid <laughs> it's pretty funny uh, there's a there's a couple other things so you go to saudi arabia now there's a couple things that kind of stood out to me about saudi arabia and you um you you talk about now I've heard you in interviews say that you learned that it's different cultures and stuff as you were working as a Navy SEAL and stuff. But, uh, and as you worked as in the covert stuff that you did, but you seem to not like Saudi Arabia very much growing up. (laughs) And it seems like it, that drove you a lot in the beginning of your career. And yeah, I, uh, I tend to compare it to, today's, you know, combat operations that, you know, obviously have been going on for 20 years. And you, if you've been in and out of those countries enough, you, I started to see myself. Right. And okay. I, and I kind of try to compare, do this comparison. You know, I, I remember looking at these kids in Iraq and they look at us like they hate us, right. They do hate us. And it made me realize a little bit of like how I grew up in Saudi, looking at the Saudis, hating them because of how they would treat us or treat my dad or whatever. Um, And so 
you start to kind of realize that, well, you know, wait a minute here. If, uh, if I grew up with that passion, with all the opportunities in the world, right? I could be a lawyer, I could be a doctor, but that passion kept me on the path of becoming a SEAL where I'd whisper under my breath, I'm gonna come back someday and kill these fuckers, right? Um, you can only imagine when you have all those kids over there who for two decades have seen us, looked at us and hate us, but you look at their opportunity, you know, and there isn't really much other right. than to radicalize and wanna come back and kill us someday. You know, so it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a horrible cycle that could potentially just continue to happen. Um, and it kind of lends to, you know, my reasoning on why you shouldn't pull out. You have to stay there long enough to, for them to forget and not hate um, by showing the flag and doing the humanitarian operations and stuff. I mean, I tell people all the time to this day, we still occupy Europe. We just don't say the word occupy, but we got bases in every country and we still send troops there all the time. And we did it until, you know, they it, everything was rebuilt and back to normal. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but once you go, once you go start something, you got to like, you know, you got to finish it or at least stay long enough until they forget um, why you're even there in the first place, you know? So it's a, uh, I mean, that's just my two cents. It, um, you know, I know there's a lot of politics involved in all that, and I've seen it firsthand. But, um, you know, the point being is, you know, yeah, I grew up over there, and that passion definitely kept me on the path of uh, doing what I did. Would you agree, though, as Americans, we have very short memories, very short memories. The memories over there and the deep, anger and hatred of not just Americans, but Westerns Westerners in general, how does that ever go away? Because that seems deep seated. I mean, we're talking generations going back, uh, in Europe, I would think it would be a little different. We had some allies over there. We had some, but we're, we're pretty low on the totem pole right now as of people liking us in that area of the world. So how do we fix that problem? Yeah, no, true. I mean, you know, we were heroes in World War II and in Europe and, you know, we're basically, you know, villains in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it would take even longer um, uh, to try and basically win the hearts and minds of those kids. That's really the, the ultimate goal. The, the minute you can get a couple of generations of kids going, okay, they're not so bad after all. Okay, I kind of understand why they came in the first place. Okay, that, you know, what they were doing was not just for the greater good of the United States, but the greater good, you know, for Iraq or Afghanistan as well. You know, you just go back and look at combat operations versus humanitarian or diplomacy. Uh, you know, the last two certainly outweigh the first two by now. It's just, you know, there's a lot that's been done that nobody ever talks about right. and trying to win that piece. But, yeah, it would take exponentially longer um, to kind of get rid of the uh, that villain piece. Um, I don't know how much longer the cultures are. They're difficult. You know, it's difficult for us to ever understand. I grew up there and, you know, I don't um fully understand it it's only something that you can understand if you're part of it and you've been you know you're born there and you you are in the bloodlines and it's a uh, so that's when i love it when i hear a, a politician or 
anyone that claims to be an expert on the Middle East, I'm like, you have no clue. <laughs> like it's a, it's a tough, you know, you're talking centuries of, uh, of, of how they do things Absolutely. and why, and we're never going to really truly understand it. So it, it makes it tougher. With your father over there, was there anything that he taught you? Because from reading the book, you, you showed it on your face a lot over there. What was it that he taught you that kind of got you through it until you came back here to Texas? Oh, let's see. I mean, it, my dad certainly, I knew him as, as someone who, who had a temper, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he could definitely flip the switch. Uh, and when he did, you know, it was, you know, you knew it. Um, but I think over there, you know, you get briefed when you come in that country that the father is responsible for all the family's actions. If I do something wrong, he's going to pay the price. But he also knew that if he did something, and I think, you know, the times that I would see him frustrated, I could see it in his face, but he wouldn't act on it. You know, I think that patience piece, when you're kind of up against all the odds, right? Just be patient (laughs) and don't do anything stupid and just get through it. Um, I saw him do that several times where he would just, you know, swallow that, whatever it may be, patriotism, you know, uh, ego, or just, you know, just getting mad because the hierarchy, you know, just a little example, you know, that always stuck out to me as a kid is, the hierarchy, if you go shopping or you're at the souks, um, you know, the, the Muslim men come first. And so you could be standing in a line and never move because there's always another line coming in front of you up ahead. And so it takes forever, if you're a Westerner, just to check out. It could be with groceries or you could be, you know, just, you know, just shopping. And those dudes will walk up and they know it. And they'll just get right in front of you. And there's not too much you can really do about it, even though you really want to, (laughs) you know, and I can see it all over my dad's face. He would have loved just stomp their heads in, but you know, he's like, just shake his head and just kind of sit there and take it. (laughs) I'm sure that taught you kind of a a quiet, um, kind of, you know, the story about the two bulls looking down, and they can run down and get one cow or they can walk down quietly and get them all. I think yeah. you might have learned that from him. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he, he seemed like a great guy. Now, my favorite story of your father, though, is when you come back to Texas, your yeah. mom becomes a race car driver, leaves. Uh, she's back and forth. But I think the one that I laughed the hardest about was when she came back and she told him, I need a swimming pool. And he put, he put in the swimming pool, and then I know. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he he loved that woman. I tell you, and he, you know, she would come back, and I mean, God, he you know, when you're living in Saudi, you're making you're making good money, you right. know. Uh, you're working for Aramco, and they pay really well, and so he was able to save a fair chunk of change. Um, and they, and they, if I remember right, they're one of the youngest couples over there. I mean, yeah. Cause he went know, right was, after school, right? Pretty kind of, he was teaching and then, uh, but I was, if I was in second grade, 
I mean, they were in their early thirties okay. going to, going to Saudi, you know? And, um, but yeah, he, but we get back and he had, you know, probably a fair chunk of change, but man, my mom would come and yeah, I, w- I saw him write $20,000 checks a couple of times. Just like, what the, even as a, as a high school kid and her coming and going the way she did, I, even I was like, dad, what are you doing? Like, you know, but then, yeah, but that, that, the, the swimming pool part was, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was the, that took it to the next level. And, and I don't mean to laugh, but I, I just, how you explained it, you're like, she came home and said, I'll stay if you put it in a swimming pool. And he's like, done. They start digging a hole, gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, uh, he was just as unique as he was. <laughs> uh, he he seems like a great guy. Um, the last part about your dad that I want to talk about is, and it 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 was very um, kind of heartbreaking to me. So you go through all this, you become a seal. They come down there to see you on. It's like a presentation day, like a we called them field days in the army. I guess that was kind of what it was there, where you just do presentations and show what the abilities are. And uh, he goes out and he's gone for a while and uh, he has a heart attack. Um, yeah. And and it's got to be devastating. It, just how you talk about it in the book is devastating. So you as this, this man now, you're a man and you're looking at this guy who's been the only one that's been there for you your whole life. Do you feel lost? Yeah, it was a uh, it was a surreal moment. A couple of factors, you know. One, you know, what he what he came out for was really because I'd got my trident, you know. And right right when I got my trident, the new guys usually are the ones who perform in the what used to be a Fourth of July demonstration right there in the bay in Coronado. And uh, so you know, he's coming out because I'd gotten my bird, and also you know, to watch me in the demonstration and, uh, and, and not to mention I'd been gone, you know, when you're going through buds and then you right. go through junk school and then you go through your, the, the medical school I went through, you know, it was like, okay, finally, you know, you, you kind of lay your, uh, lay your eggs there and in San Diego and start life as a seal. And so, yeah, it was his first time to come out and he brought me this uh, Triumph Trident, you know, that he had rebuilt. And uh, I remember him in his casket and his hands, you know, right here. And he still had the black paint under his fingernails oh, wow. from basically pulling that motorcycle apart, rebuilding it, blacking it out, chroming everything that could be chrome. And then he put two Navy SEAL Tridents on the gas tank. Um, super cool. I mean, that, that fucking bike made Harley sound like Hondas. It was so loud. It was a triple. Um, and you know, and then, uh, we went out to dinner that night and then came back the next morning. He did his typical, like came into the room and basically jumped up and down on my bed and said, okay, you're awake. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go down the street and grab a newspaper or something. And keep in mind, this is before cell phones and all that, right. you know, so he left and then he didn't come back. And so I went looking for him, couldn't find him, you know, like three hours went by. And then when the, one of the times I made a pit stop back at, at my condo, you know, my mom was okay. Okay. I know where he's at. And she had received a call from the hospital 
And so then I went over there and because I'd done paramedic runs in that area, I knew like, oh, you know, as soon as I walked in the ER, they said, hey, come with us this way. That's when the little chaplain room is where they, you know, where they break bad news. And so as soon as I saw my mom going that way, I was like, nope, I'm going over there towards those curtains that are closed. And sure enough, when I opened them, you know, he was already in a body bag and had an ET tube sticking out of his mouth. And I was like, damn, you know, and I, I just kind of stared at it because it's kind of unbelievable to see a, you know, a family member, you know, you usually don't get to see him that soon after right. something. So I felt like almost like I just missed him, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and, and having gone through all paramedic stuff and all the, you know, trauma training, I was also like, if you just, if that would have just happened in the damn condo, maybe just maybe because of his age, we, you know, we could have, uh, we could have kept him alive until, you know, paramedics came in a timely manner, right? He, he laid in between, he was crossing the street and he was laying and, and basically as he crossed the street, he passed between two parallel parked cars and it was right in between those two cars that he collapsed. So nobody could see him. Um, well, actually the only, somebody thought they heard someone yell and it was a woman that lived in a condo like three stories up and she was, she was doing her hair and she looked out the window, but she couldn't see anything, but she thought she heard something. And then when she came down to leave, you know, she saw this man laying there and called 911. And I mean, yeah, he missed, he missed all those crucial, you know, mm. he definitely missed the golden hour, <laughs> but he, he probably for, you know, when you talk about cardiac arrest, he missed, you know, you got to be on that quick, you know? So, Anyway, it was, uh, yeah, kind of sucked. I mean, he, I, I kind of look at, I've, I've lived one year longer than him at this point. I kept looking at the age 46 and going, well, I hope I make it to 46, <laughs> especially in the SEAL teams. But, um, yeah, made it to 46. Now I'm one year past where he was, which just shows how young he really was. You know, at the time you knew he was young, but it's not until you hit those ages, those milestones, you go, damn, he was fucking young. Yep. Yeah. So let me, if we could go a little further. So you're in this room with him. You're the only one there. Um, I feel like that's kind of fitting to end that story with you two. Yeah, I uh, I was standing there, and then it wasn't until like my, my little my little brother ended up walking in, and uh, um, yeah, it was uh, that was the that was the breaker for me when my brother looked at him and was like, kind of was like, dad, you know, cause he was young. I mean, he was, was he 12, 13? And I don't think he realized what he was seeing. Obviously it was his first time to see right. all that. And, uh, yeah, that was, that part was, you know, obviously that one will pull on you. Um, but just a, uh, those moments when I think back to him, you just kind of like, man, so it's, uh, everyone has to deal with death and it's nothing new for most people, especially if you live long enough, then obviously you deal with it over and over and over again. But, um, I just remember at that point, it's just the one guy you think, oh yeah, he's fine. He's nothing's ever going to happen to this dude, you know? Um, yeah, it was surprising to say the least. So do you think it changed the way you treated death 
in the SEAL teams, in combat, uh, in country, do you, do you think that it, it changed your sense of thinking of it? Uh, I don't know if it correlated so much with that stuff. Um, because you can compartmentalize that. Is that why it would? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I remember one time I was probably having a moment where sitting in the back of a six by for land warfare out at Nyland and it's like 115 degrees and we're going out in the middle of nowhere to run around and shoot targets. Right. And, uh, I remember one of the, I, I one of the guys sitting across from me asking me like, Hey, you all right? Cause I was kind of just, it was really, I mean, it literally weeks after, after all that happened. And, um, but I remember what I was thinking about at that moment was just like how odd it is for, somebody that young, you know, to already be dead. And then to think of all the stories that, um, you know, we both get to, we're missing out on, right. Although it's shared time and the stories that you miss out on, but you know, once you get into in combat situations or any time operationally, I never really, I don't, I don't think I ever correlated the two cause that's, that's something sacred. And then when you're, dealing with idiots, you know, that's totally different. <laughs> so, so, so let yeah. me ask you one other, uh, one other medical thing. When you were working as a paramedic, you mentioned, and it was interesting to me, you mentioned one story about one waitress and uh, a traffic accident. Yeah. Any reason why you picked that one? I mean, I, I, I understand. And what you were doing with it when you go to the restaurant and you see the little, but any reason you picked that one, I'm sure you saw tons of stuff. Any reason you picked that particular one? I think because it was the most, it was just probably the most mysterious, right? Like the most, uh, I just remember that her face, right? That's the, that's the one thing out of, you're right. After, you know, out of all the different runs, different cities, there was a story to her that never, I never got to hear or was, un, you know, untold, right? I mean, here's this beautiful girl sitting in the driver's seat next to our ambulance. And I just remember the red light on her face and that highlighted the tears coming down. And then her just taking off like a bat out of hell as soon as that light turned green. And uh, I remember leaning forward, looking between the two, you know, the, the driver, passenger, seat of the of the ambulance and through the windshield and saw her tumble down there at the end she just didn't make the turn and uh yeah i just remember that approach and i just kind of i think it i think the biggest reason is because it was a she had some, whatever it was she had going on that night i, I think i would have loved to have known like what it was that you know what she was upset about and you know why she ended up you know, obviously driving the car reckless and killing herself, you know, it's just seeing it from beginning to end like that, I think is usually when you show up and you know, this being a cop, it's like, you're seeing the aftermath, Absolutely. you know, 90, 99% of the time. It's the same with paramedics. It's very rare that you're seeing the whole, the whole thing happen right there in front of you, you know? So we moved through, you become a Navy SEAL, you become a medic. We won't even get into the medical stories that you put in there because you, you did put some ones in there. Mostly they deal with fecal matter and uh, compacted <laughs> people. So we'll we'll let the people read the book and hear those stories. But 
if I should, if I could suggest, I hope they listen to the audio version instead of read it so that they can hear how you describe what's going on. You do it. Yeah. You go over yeah. to the Middle East. <laughs> you talk about um, kind of testing yourself in combat. Uh, you guys go out. Well, you, you go out and you're in a stack waiting to kind of with a, a large group. You're waiting to, to uh, go into this city the next day. And then an ambush happens. Uh, and kind of all hell breaks loose. Um, and one more time as I'm reading it, it was how you pointed things out. And, and that's what I liked about the book through the whole way. You, you talk about this big firefight and taking these people out and maybe some people didn't do their job or whatever. But then you have these boastful people that are saying, I took that guy out and this and that. But you make sure that you point out the guy that took that guy out for sure was the one that put it in his head. Yeah. And so I wonder when I was reading that, I wonder what was your approach over there? Because you seem to have taken a different approach. Like, yeah, we, we just did this, but who the fuck knows who killed the guy and who, who knows what made it happen and why it happened. We just have to get the job done. And then you have these other guys that are coming in and going, yeah, we just fucking rocked this place. And, and it always seemed to me in the book, like you were like, what the fuck are you talking about? Just do your job and shut the fuck up and let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, so first, I mean, being a part of like real combat, right. I mean, that is when you're, when you're part of the initial push with whether you're, you know, in, with or in front of the Marines or with or in front of the army pushing North through Iraq. Um, that's a very unique experience and anybody who got to do it, they got to be part of something that, you know, at times is no different than Vietnam or world war two in terms of you're not, you know, you don't have a, a place to go sleep each night. You're sleeping on the ground or you're sleeping under your vehicles or, you know, you're not, there's no infrastructure yet, right? You're just invading a country and you're doing it with your best buddies. And no uh, armor. And yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you know, <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we didn't have crap. Um, we call it the golden cruise box and the golden cruise box was just starting to open uh, after, you know, Afghanistan opened up, get into Iraq. And then it took another year or two before all of a sudden we were the most heavily equipped dudes on the planet, but it took a little bit of time to get there. But yeah, so you would you know, think after that Charlie Sheen movie that they would have, uh, given you guys anything <laughs> you wanted. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of, that leads to a whole other discussion on when you pre nine 11, you just train, train, train. Um, and you're not really advancing other things. You know, I'd say our training was always great, but you know, optics, weapons, armor, this and that, you know, that all came out of experience in the battlefield. And that's when it really got tightened up and you got really good stuff issued to you was because of deployments and, you know, come back and you do reports like this thing sucks. You know, we need a different one <laughs> or, you know, green tip, green tip is flying too hot. It's just passing right through the guy and nobody knows they're even being shot until you put 15 rounds in them, you know? <laughs> so it's, it wasn't until stuff like that you go, Oh, we need to make things better. But, um, 
but yeah, we, we got in there and, you know, and you had a lot of, uh, first time stuff and it was exciting and guys were excited. Um, because like any soldier war is the pinnacle of your career. If you don't get to go do that, then it's feel, you feel like your whole career was a waste and all you did was train. And trust me, there was a lot of guys that that's, that's all they did for an entire career as a SEAL was train. And they may have gotten lucky and got to go do something real world once in their 20 years, right? And here we are. Uh, it was either Admiral Olson or McCraven that said it best. Like what used to be the op of the century is now an op every night, right? And uh, it's it was so true because, you know, every night, or sometimes twice a day, you're pulling off these feats of crap that you never would have thought, you know, that you would have been a, been privileged enough to be a part of. I mean, it was just so, so, so cool. Um, but to be part of that push was definitely uh, a unique experience. And, um, and it's not like going and hitting a target, you go in, hit a target and then come home. You know, it's, it's, you're in it and you're, it's 24 seven until it's done until somebody tells you, okay, it's time to go home. But, um, and in all that you had guys get a little, um, you know, a little bit too alpha probably as it related to shooting people or whatever. And this was before you could, you know, before at the beginning, nobody cared if you took a picture with a dead guy you know, nobody cared about any of that crap. Security rounds were still allowed. You know, if you, if you like what the story you're talking about is, you know, we'd shot the guy and he was, he was sitting there gargling and drowning and, you know, uh, labored breathing. And so, you know, security rounds, you just say it, you say it out loud, security round, and then boom, you know, somebody puts one to two in the head and calls it a day. And so, yeah, there was a lot of debate about who shot what. And it was just like, to me, I was just like, what are you talking about? And I was in a leader, leadership position too. So, you know, I was trying to just eliminate it, like shut the fuck up. You know, you didn't, no one did anything. It's a group effort. And anytime, you, you know, snipers really are the only ones that can claim anything. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you get and sometimes into they can't even claim. Yeah. Yeah. You, you get into it, whether it's a room in a house or you're out in the middle of nowhere and you got you and your buddies all shooting, then it's very difficult to say, I, I, me, me, I did that, you know? And that's what I was, was pointing out in the book because everyone forgot it was the guy that did the security rounds that actually finished that guy, that story, right? Security rounds of the head. That's it. End of story. It doesn't even matter what the hell everyone else is talking about. <laughs> So, yeah, anyway. There's a difference with you and some of the guys that were over there, though, because you had a little bit different scenario going on back home. Not only were you brand new to combat, but you also were fairly new with a bride, and your little brother was living with you at the time, correct? Yeah, he uh, he came out, you know, so you can imagine – his dad dies at a very impressionable age and, you know, and, uh, he started acting out back home. My mom couldn't handle him. So I went home and was like, all right, didn't even, didn't even tell him. I just picked him up at school and we drove to San Diego. You know, this is from Texas. And he was just kind of like, where are we, what, what's going on? I'm like, that, uh, that was our turn, man. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, brought him out and, 
you know, there was a point of contention in the marriage because I really didn't, you know, ask, you know, my, my wife at the time, I just kind of told her like, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to let this kid go and ruin his life and go off, you know, the wrong way. And I kept telling her you would do it for your, you know, brother or sister. Right. I mean, this is what we do for family. Um, but it, it, you know, regardless of whatever my argument was, whatever her argument was, it was, we just didn't agree on that. And so, um, I brought him out and, you know, and, uh, yeah, there was a deployment. It wasn't the initial push, but on one deployment, you know, he was, you know, he was smoking pot and, you know, hooking up with chicks and, you know, just doing, just, you know, just be going a little crazy, uh, as a, what was he? I think you said he was 15. That's yeah. I think that's what you said in the book that he was 15. 15. Yeah. 15 going on 16 at the time. And yeah, I was standing on the deck of the USS Cole (laughs) and, uh, and I'm on a satellite phone yelling, yelling at my brother, like, like, you know, stop, just stop being a prick. Listen to her, be home at the curfew. Stop being an idiot. You know, just please just, you know, like just to make our lives a little bit easier. I need you to just be a good boy for right now until I get home. And, uh, and then my, my, my seal team three master chief, who's a great friend of mine now, he went over to the house and, (laughs) tried to talk sense in this teenager. And of course my brother went off on him and, and like called the master chief's wife, like fat, like get out of my fat, get out of here, fat ass or whatever he said to her. And of course, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, my, my master chief tells me that. And I was just like, I, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, master chief. Yep. I, I don't know what to say right now, you know, but, uh, Anyway, we got done with the USS Cole and made our way back home. And yeah, I had to, I had to choke that kid out a couple of times to put him back on the right track. So, well, at at a certain point, he does go back on track. What was it that that was it? Just the ass whoopings, or did he just get tired of it, or do you think he just broke that phase and he was like, "All right." Yeah, I think part of it was you know a little bit of the ass whoopings, but. I think too, I think he just kind of realized, you know, I, I, you know, we we're really close and we always were. And so it was real, you know, I'd always point out to him that, Hey, look, I get it. You know, you should, dad should be around. They were super tight, you know, and it's, uh, you've been put in a shitty position, but that doesn't mean you got to act, you know, act, act out. I, I get it, but you gotta, gotta stop doing that because you got a whole future in front of you and, you know, and he did, he came around and now he's, uh, you know, he's a GS 15 working on all kinds of cool, you know, TSSCI projects and travels the world and does cool stuff. And I'm super proud of him. Well, I'm glad he hasn't called anyone's wife a fat ass anymore. Cause that could be <laughs> detrimental to a career. Oh yeah. 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 You so, know, what's funny about that. You know, what's funny about that part is, uh, <laughs> You know, that master chief, you know, he came to me like, you know, years later, we were reminiscing and talking about this story because <laughs> he had divorced her. Right. And he was like, secretly, you know, your brother was right. She was a fat ass. <laughs> He's like, I can't say that I got mad about that when he said that. <laughs> Pretty funny. 
so you you move on now. You talk about um, kind of never being able to really. I don't know if the word is embrace combat or able to do over there. And you're, you're briefed by your chain of command and they're asking, Hey, has anybody got anything? And you're like, Hey, this was our chance. We think we were robbed of it. You did it in a, a better way than your partner did. Um, and, yeah. and some other people, but you told him this and then that's what kind of set you on the path to go off on this covert stuff. So let's say that never happens and you you do as much battle as you can possibly handle over there. Do you still go that route or do you stay kind of operational and um you know, I probably would have stayed man, that's hard to say because you know, I had the opportunity to do some cool stuff by because of the the trigger for it was like the leadership at the time, you know, right. they were it was, you know, to keep it simple, it was a bunch of dudes coming out from their cubicles, you know, and now trying to manage combat, which they'd never done. And I give them that. It's new. Um, but they were, you know, handling it. You know, they were armchair, they were armchair quarterbacking, you know, at, at, at the greatest, at the highest levels. And so it was, uh, it was frustrating at times, but the frustration is what made it easy when I was presented, Hey, you want to try something new? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's see what this is about, you know? Um, and if that, I guess if, if we had been just rocking and rolling from the very beginning, um, yeah, I probably would have just stayed in it, to be honest with you, because that's that's what you kind of – it's the thrill, it's the risk. All of that is, you know, is what you live for. Or if you're – I always tell people, you know, like I get the question about racism and the SEAL teams. <laughs> it's real easy. There's no racism. It's not a whole bunch of white guys because it's a whole bunch of white guys picking white guys. It's a bunch of white guys because white dudes are the only ones that do crazy, stupid shit. If you look at serial killers, if you look at NASCAR, if you look at the X Games, if you look at the SEAL teams, yeah, they're all like I don't know like if I white. like being compared to NASCAR and serial killers, <laughs> but... <laughs> but the point being is it has nothing to do right. with color. That's a bunch of damn crazy white people that just right. do crazy stuff, you know, but it's... Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key is it's, we want to go do that stuff. We like, we're chomping at the bit to go do something great, something cool that will satisfy whatever, you know, whatever it is for the day or for the night, you know, that's really all it boils down to. And, and so if we were able to just do that, you know, from the beginning on a regular basis without all the, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, just leadership issues, I think, yeah, I probably would have stayed in it. So let's let's go over into that career for a little bit, um, and and I don't know how much you can really talk about that career of of certain things, but what was it about that career that you were like, this is pretty badass? Um, I think a couple things. One, um, you know, when I was brought over, we were basically working directly for our admiral, and you know, so that that had its own kind of privileges right and they were like you don't you know you're not wearing uniforms anymore and here's a here's a badge that you know um basically allows you access and do things that 
you know, equivalent to like a GS, you know, 15, you know, and uh, we're enlisted guys. So, um, and then another part of it that I liked was that we were kind of, you know, just, Hey, figure it out, which is what the SEAL community really is all about. We really do um, go and have that freedom as, as operators to go and, you know, figure something out, build a program, you know, build the better, you know, widget, whatever it is, you know, it's very loose inside the community, um, mainly because the enlisted kind of run the show. And uh, so it came with a lot of flexibility to build something new. Um, and I, and then I, that's when I found out like, oh, and so that kind of opens the door to creativity. Now, if we're going to be building, well, then now I can put all that kind of creative and um, the all these different thoughts and processes in place that you know could 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 help be uh, the, the foundation to build upon. You know, and uh, anyway, it, I, I always tell you don't talk around stuff, but yeah, I find myself going, okay, I'll say the wrong word right now. <laughs> We'll, you know, we'll redact it. So, uh, so yeah, I didn't say anything wrong, but it's just so. Well, the let me ask you is, something, Clint. Let me let me go back yeah. for real quick. So, do you think that's what you were missing in the seals then? No, because it's a different. It's a it's a different kind of. Uh, I think what's missing is when you go to the seal teams, they're already there. They're already built, and it's already in place. This was something new and. Okay. And a hundred percent different. And so, um, and the Admiral had an idea, he had a plan, um, but he just wanted us to execute it. And, and basically was like, just go figure it out and make it happen. And that's kind of a cool place to be, you know? Um, and so a couple of us did just that and we built a program, but the program required deployments and then you would take the lessons learned and put it back into the program and then you'd go deploy again. And, and before you know it, years go by and, uh, and they were, you know, standing up commands that now run all of not just what we built, the training we built, the missions that come with it. Um, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. And then, uh, and then from there, I just kind of kept moving kind of further down that hole of, uh, of, of the covert clandestine world. Um, and, and then just got to be part of some really, uh, unique stuff that, um, you know, not many other guys got to kind of break ground on. So I think that was the key is being able to break, break new ground on, on something, um, I just, yeah, it was just, it was, it was like a puzzle and you get to, okay, now figure out how to put it together, you know, and, and there and really is no way to put it together because it's never been put together before. Right. It's uh, it was, yeah, it, it had no real solid direction. And then, you know, which, which allowed us to kind of navigate um, based on at first it was based on operations and then once we started building a reputation, you know, doing certain things, uh, then before you know it, you got the attention of like national level stuff saying, Hey, we, we know that you're capable of these things. Now can you, you know, do that for us? 
and that's kind of like when you know you've made it, right? That's it's like, whoa, this is like the big guys now asking us to do this stuff. And uh, and when I say stuff, you know, it's like you know you don't have twenty two guys stacked up behind you, <laughs> you know, um, it's you and maybe your buddy, and then you're going and trying to pull off the same kind of stuff that you and your your twenty one buddies would have done. Well, and, and, and I think the difference there is, is that, um, you, you really kind of learn self-sufficiency and, um, not necessarily a teammate, but definitely an overwatch. You really have to, and I would say even more, and I'm saying from a a little bit of my experience and, and I won't go into that, but you almost have to trust them more than you would trust those 22 dudes standing behind you because it's, it's you and them and your nuts on the line and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was moments when, you know, it dawns on you that, Oh, wait a minute. There's like zero assets supporting me, (laughs) nothing. And, uh, but for me, that was like, that was cocaine. I was like, man, this is like, this is, this is it. This is cool. Um, and, you know, your celebration when you'd actually go, I'd go out, do something and come back was like, you know, if I was lucky, a hot shower. That was my celebration. That was like, yeah, hot shower in a shithole. And, uh, okay. And you pat yourself on the back for a little bit and then. Yeah, because really, I, I mean, if we're going to be honest, no one else gives a shit. Right. Yeah. The, the job's done. We're done with you. No one gives a shit. Move on to the next one. Right. Yeah. It's pretty much. And, you know, and I almost treat myself like that. Right. I'm like, okay, you did a good job, but fuck off. Right. Move on. And, uh, and then, that's gotta uh, be you know, an odd, that's gotta be an odd few minutes in front of the mirror. <laughs> yeah. But I always equate it to the shower because by the time I dry myself off, I was done. You know, you, you your celebration is done. And then, uh, you, now your your game face is back on and, and uh, because it wasn't over until you're back home in those types of situations, right? You could go out and do something cool, you know, a couple of nights in a row, in a, in a row or whatever. And then, and then it, but it really wasn't until you were out of there, right? And you're back home safe that you're like, okay, yeah, now I can kind of let my guard down a little bit and, and go, whoa, that was pretty cool. When is the next trip? Let me go sign up. <laughs> you ever worry it'll follow you? Anything? Um, you mean in terms of like bad guys knocking on the door? Or? Maybe, or or yeah, just I mean, you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we had some when, when I was on the East Coast, we had the FBI sending us credible threats. Right when you when you're part of a, a you know a command that's you know killing. A, Osama bin Laden and, you know, and a lot of other really bad people, uh, you know, it gets threatened. And we had, you know, FBI guys um, either sending us, you know, intel or they would come and brief us. And so you got to the point where you're like, whoa, you know, this this shit really could follow you home. Now, the odds are, you know, you always kind of thought about like, well, could they? But the reality is, is yeah. They yeah. could. I mean, and, and, and it's not going to be us. 
right? We're kind of the hard target. It's going to be our families. And that's when you get that, when you start to think, Oh, wait a minute, if they, if they were to come to Virginia beach and stay for any amount of time, it doesn't take long to figure it all out. And then once they figure it all out, that means, okay, now they know where we all live and it's not a big area. Um, Schedules, and, all that kind of stuff. Very yeah, easy to get onto. And so there was tons for a while there. It was like on a regular basis of possible surveillance or possible this or pop, you know, and it, yeah, it got to the point where you're like, you know, <laughs> everyone's already packing heat, but you are not taking it for granted any right. longer. Right. Yeah. So about the, um, I watched you on a video. It was called, uh, it was called a night with Clint Emerson. Um, I thought it was going to be a way different video than it was, but, uh, <laughs> you're speaking to the spy museum. Um, yeah. now this is where it gets confusing for me. So you're going to have to kind of clear me up if I say it wrong. You're one of the only military people that's ever been inducted into the spy museum or the spy hall of fame, or I, I, I didn't really get what it was. So you're going to have to explain it a little better than I just did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there was a, it's an interesting, it's a longer probably story, but, um, the short answer is when I was in, I spent a little bit of time at the NSA. And when I was at the NSA, um, I ended up being introduced to, you know, several guys, um, you know, directors and some, some of your higher ups. Uh, they, they were, you know, they're privy of everything that you do or have done. And, you know, you know, they're giving you, you know, awards for it, you know, and, um, all kinds of kind of kudos most of the time, kind of like the behind the closed door type pinning of a medal or something like that, you know? Um, and then a lot of those guys become board members on the spy museum. The spy museum is very serious about, um, holding on and remembering the history of espionage and all of its, um, its technology, the missions, the people. And so, um, yeah, they, they, because there's people on the board that know certain things it, and they, and it made it easier for them to go, Hey, we, you know, um, God, it's so hard to talk about, isn't it? <laughs> there's guy, so there's guys that just knew shit that I did, and they were like, "Let's get them in here," and they created a, you know, this. It's it's almost embarrassing. Like there's this whole like area that's kind of my stuff that I donated. Is I there said, a painting of you there? <laughs> Not a painting, but there's a picture, and uh, <laughs> and then they got all my stuff that I donated. You know, like these jackets that I had built that you know you can hide stuff inside, and then they've got some of my tools that I use to get myself into targets and some of the technology. And I just you know what are you going to do with that stuff? So I donated to them, and they created this this. Uh, <laughs> Shrine. You could say yeah. shrine. Just say it. Yeah, it's like this Clint Emerson thing. And uh, <laughs> every now and then, man, people take pictures of that thing and send it to me. And I'm always just shaking my head like, all right. When you walk past it, is there like an aura around you? Do you have like a glow? <laughs> yeah. <to> your... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's cool what they do in there. Um, but that that is like, yeah. I, I, it gets... It, 
you know, other people like to leverage it too, you know, and I get it. It's, it, it's cool and I'm honored. Um, but for me personally, it's like, okay, I'm a little, <laughs> it's a little, it's a little it's too a, much. For it's me, pretty but. cool though. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing to have your own kind of, that's the only word I can think of. Cause I don't want to say memorial cause it's not a memorial, but like a, a shrine. Yeah. I think, probably the better way that I have to think about it in terms of is it really um, showcases uh, some of the, you know, capabilities guys like me, I'm not the only one, you know? And so it's showcasing that look at like the ability of our operators, our operatives. um, And these are the tools that they've used, you know, on missions, um, you know, all over the globe. And I think that's, that's kind of how I try to like rationalize the whole thing. Like, all right, it just, it really represents a community. I just happen to be the guy they picked, you know, I just got lucky. Well, and you know, but it, you were a different kind of person than a normal spot or a normal operative. I mean, you, you have to, you have to acknowledge that. Um, I mean, I just got to break ground on it. On it. I, I right, got, you and a couple yeah. guys, but you were a different breed. Your whole group was a different breed. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. That's fair, and not not. But it, at the end of the day, what's what's what sticks with you the longest in the military is ultimately you get orders to do things, and so I just you know me and these other guys, we were lucky enough to be given those orders to go do that kind of thing, you know, and it, it's, uh, I, I, like I said, it was just, it was so cool and such a great opportunity. And it was a, you know, an honor to be able to experience different levels of that, of, of both tactical and national level stuff. Well, let's move on. Cause I don't want to embarrass you anymore about that kind of stuff. Let's, <laughs> yeah, okay, let's move on to, uh, all the different things that you're doing now. First off, let's talk about, uh, escape the wolf. Now that from everything that I've seen on the internet and look through, um, it is kind of, you buy a membership and it's what 70, I think $79 a year for the membership. Uh, and it has different training videos, how to survive, uh, active shooters or different things like that. This is going to be kind of the bread and butter of everything you are right now. Is this escape the wolf? Would you agree? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, it, I tell people it's my day job and we, it really is this past year or two is the only time I've been offering it to at consumer level where before everything we were doing was crisis management for, you know, small to large organizations you know we've got some great fortune 500 clients and then we've got places of worship we've got private schools so you know we try to go in and give them a program that is standardized and holds up in court it integrates well with their general liability and worker comp policies and then also educates and prepares their workforce um for the big, you know, big five types of crisis there are there, which is, you know, medical events, man-made, natural disaster, safe travel, uh, and cyber. And so we've broken out um, pandemic. It used to fall under medical, but now it's broken out into its own. So it's kind of like the sixth crisis. And we, uh, we like to joke that we were doing pandemic policies and training before pandemic was cool, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. In fact, I lied. I don't, there was deals. 
Lots I don't think pandemic's still cool to this day. So if I can just put my right, two cents right. on that, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's cool now. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I say that in more of a uh, spirited way of business because I had plenty of dudes. I'd go in and say, yeah, and we do, you know, if you don't have a pandemic policy in place, blah, 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 blah. Maybe you're like, pandemic? That Hell, that's like an alien invasion. You, you think that's going to happen? And I'd be like, hey, you never know. So, yeah. Anyway, um, we do. And then and then we took all that. And then now we've been kind of uh, br- breaking it down. And now, you know, on the website, now a, a consumer can go and get all that education if their employer is not providing it. But I, I think you would agree that a lot of employers don't provide it. Right. Yeah, they don't. And it's like a lot of it is they don't know what they don't know. You know, and we hear that all the time, but you have to go in. I have to go in. I have to like, like explain like, okay, this is a policy. It's more than just a piece of paper, right? It, this thing, this thing holds up in court. It will protect your ass. It does a lot of things other than lay out, you know, the protocol and best practices when a good day goes bad. So you got to have the policy. And, it, you know, so I find myself having to sell them on all aspects of a program that they should just already have in place. You know, they just don't know how and they don't know, like, they just don't know. And so you got to educate them, not sell them, you know. Do you think that that's because coming from my background and stuff, a lot of people want to keep their heads in the sand? If I can't see it, they can't see me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from my experience, they think insurance is that's it. If I've got insurance, I'm good. It covers everything. Um, And, you know, that's just kind of a it. Yeah. Insurance does drive the train when you talk about risk. You know, if anybody has the title risk in their name in a corporation, it usually means they just deal with insurance. They don't actually deal with risk. <laughs> they go and they spend money that will throw money at the problem when the problem occurs. <laughs> so, and I have to go in and go, no, we, you need my stuff yeah. to integrate with your insurance. So anyway, <laughs> that's boring stuff. No, I, but I, I think that it's a, in these times right now with everything that we've seen last summer going through to this year with this summer, that's about to happen because my prediction is this summer is going to get real hot real quick in about two months when some stuff starts happening. Some um, when they start handing down sentences and stuff like that, I think it's going to be a very hot summer. But yeah. I don't think people, even when that happened and, and agreed that it took us by surprise. But I think it took people going, holy shit. Like if you have to, you're, you're from the area. If you have to plywood the entire area of downtown to have an election, something has gone horribly fucking wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been covering, you know, was that social unrest piece, you know, and it's, it's also, I hit it harder actually in my uh, hundred deadly skill books, you know, cause that's kind of my, the other job, right. Is how do I, how do I get, the stuff that I've been doing for corporations, how do I get it in a unique, informative, entertaining way to everyone else? You do. Yeah. So that's, you know, illustrated books on how to get yourself out of uh, a bad situation. 
Um, and I've got social unrest and stampede and crush injury stuff in there. Um, you know, that we've, you know, we've learned, oh, Hey, what you thought would only happen, you know, overseas or at a soccer game and, you know, in Europe, when the crowd, when the, when the losing yeah. crowd decides to just go crazy, it can happen right here down the street, you know? And, uh, so it's, you got to know what to do. Um, even when you think you don't need to know it. Let's talk about 100 Deadly Skills because it's not only the books, uh, and and you have three different books, uh, Survivor Edition, Combat Edition, the Puzzle Activity Book, and then the the uh, Survival Edition, right? Did I say that, Survivor Edition? I think I did. Um, what? Yeah, what? well, we've got the first yeah, the first one was Escape and Evasion. The second one is Survival. And the third is the Combat Edition. And then you've got the puzzle book was built and designed to help with the brain, you know, awareness and memory. I, 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 I'm not <clears throat> joking when I tell you this. I, I like puzzle books, and I loved that puzzle book. Uh, it, it had some great ones that I had never it's seen good before. To hear, man. It, it was, it, I, I loved it. And I finished a bunch of the book, um, just passing time on vacations and stuff like that. Now, the one that I really want to talk about though, is the combat, because you took that one to kind of another level. And if I can go back real quick on these books and in the right kind of crazy and all that kind of stuff, you have an affinity for, uh, illustrations and cartoons. You have DC and Marvel people that came in and did, are you a secret combat, uh, excuse me, are you a secret comic book guy or what is it that, that made you do that? Cause it's in all the books. Yeah, it's, um, so one, I am, I'm a fan of like Marvel DC stuff. I think, uh, you know, when I talk, when you, if you talk about characters that influenced me the most, like that original Superman and the, you know, that came out in the seventies with Christopher Reeves and, you know, like I, I was at that age where that was everything to me, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and to this day, I'll still watch all those damn Marvel DC movies anytime they come out. But what I, what I, I got to ask you real quick. Did you watch the four hour one on HBO? I did. Yeah. Holy shit. It yeah. took me like three days to get through that fucking thing. <laughs> I'm not saying it was yeah, bad, but it took me a while. Yeah, I probably paused it a couple of times, but I mean, I you know, I was I was definitely just trying to find all those differences that weren't in the original, you know. Um, and there's a ton, right? I mean, it's so cool how they were. I was like sitting there going, "Wait a minute!" So did they film all this first and decide yep. not to use any of it? Yeah, and then they that's exactly they what happened. To, yeah, they cut it all down into because it was too long, and then they yeah. I mean, I thought it was it was pretty cool. Um, I did too, and, and I love his other stuff. Uh, Three hundred Watchmen. I love Watchmen. Yeah, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. I, that darker side is what sells me every time. Yeah. Um, especially Superman was all blacked out. I was like, dude, that's badass. I want one of those fucking outfits. But uh, <laughs> black leotards. I love black leotards. Okay, so here's my idea: <laughs> we could get you one of those and put it at the spy museum. Yeah, there you go. As long as long as I can stuff a sock down in there, and, okay. You know, yeah, no, yeah, no yeah. problem, no problem. We, we'll get okay. in touch with someone. So, a hundred <laughs> daily skills. Back to that, the combat edition. Now, you've gone further than the book, and what I thought was interesting was you traveled around the United States, and you met with the, in my opinion, the deadliest men around, uh, and there's some deadly dudes in there. 
talking yeah. to them about stuff. And, and it's super cool to just hear like Pat McNamara talk about someone's moxie and the, the will to burn you down. And, and, uh, yeah. You know, you got uh, Bill on there from Amtech and uh, all all that stuff. How cool was it to meet all those guys? Because I've got a couple of them scheduled to do interviews coming up. Uh, I'm yeah. still begging Pat McNamara, but he's, I don't know. I, I'll get him sooner or later, but. Yeah. Just what was it like to to get inside those dudes' brains? Because more than the combat, just to hear that's what's the interesting part to me. Just when he says that will to burn you down and stuff. Yeah, no, he, Pat, especially, I mean, I, I say it all the time. I mean, that guy should have his own TV show. Like I, I'm so, I'm, I'm, and potentially he's probably been asked, right? I just don't know. Well, he's got a but, new vlog yeah. out. You know about that, right? What's that? He's got a new vlog out now. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I, I haven't checked it out yet because. Pretty funny. Pretty funny. I bet. Yeah. I, that everything he does is is unique. It's original. He's an original guy. His personality is the kind that you just you automatically like. Guys like me automatically go, "Oh yeah, I love this guy." I don't even need to. Know, I, I first minute or two, I was like, "I am a Pat McNamara fan, no doubt." There's nothing that's going to change that either. Um, but he is about as solid as they come. He is. Definitely dangerous. Um, you know, he, he's been around the block a bunch of times. He, you know, just, just him being a, a, you know, making it Sergeant major Delta force guy. Uh, you know, I, you know, I admire the guy and then he's been out and he's just been beating down doors. But when you, I haven't, I've got all the, all the, all the actual interviews I did with them. Each interview is probably two hours long, and his is one of the best. His life story, like how he grew up and how he became who he is, is just awesome. I mean, and uh, I can't think of a, a, a better guy to represent that tactical training world than him. I mean, he he's uh, – I say it all the time. He's like rock and roll, the WWE, and a, a glass of bourbon wrapped up in the American flag. I mean, <laughs> he's just – a hundred percent personality, but a tactician all the way, you know? So yeah, great. All those guys, I mean, it, it, it different, they're all, they're all pros at what they do. And that's why I knew I didn't want to do another book of my skills or, uh, you know, anything like that. I knew I wanted to go out and find the pros in all the different industries, whether it's hand to hand combat, pistol, rifle, sniper, and all the stuff in the middle with knife throwing, uh, you know, the first American ninja. Um, I just, it, you know, part of it was because some of those were friends. Part of it was because they were guys I wanted to get to know, you know. And uh, and so I was like, well, hell, I'll just put them all into a book and highlight their skills and market the shit out of them because I really don't like marketing myself. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, it was. Once again, just a, it worked out great because of the pandemic. You know, I, I basically went from coast to coast, 11,000 miles, 16 guys in 30 days, the whole month of May. Like literally today was day one a year ago that I started uh, at John Lovell's place, you know, Warrior Poet Society in Atlanta. He was my, he was my first stop and I was there 
today filming a year ago. And that's and where the I show went. is actually airing is Warrior Poet, right? Yeah. So yes, it, it turned in we had enough we had enough footage to create thirteen episodes for him that's on Warrior Poet Society Network. How was uh how was Bill? Because that that is an interesting guy to me. Yeah, he is uh if I if I had to pick anyone out of the bunch that I would put money on against anybody on this planet, it's Bill. Like that dude. Wow. Um, Bill Rapier, I've known for a long time, and uh, but he's uh, he has been studying warfare. Um, I mean, since he was a kid. I mean, he can tell you the history of almost every kind of warfare that's out there, every kind of martial art. I mean, he has lived it and breathed it his entire life. And it shows when the first second he holds you, touches you, or you do anything with him, you know, his 50% is equivalent to everybody else's 150%, you know, like it's just, he is a, he is a operator's operator through and through. Um, Definitely one of the most respected guys in our community, uh, but also one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And that's what I was about to say, like a super quiet guy, like off the grid, just it, yeah. it's, his story is so fascinating to me just in that sense that that there's all this, uh, like you said, the, the ability to do what he can do. And it's all just kind of wrapped up in a nice little quiet package. And and you don't yeah. know that if you fucking pull the lid off it, it's going to blow oh, up yeah. in your face. Yeah, that guy, that guy is scary, right? I mean, he is straight up will, you know, like I said, he would know he was he would always act on the side of good, you know, and that's that's where you want to keep him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I have him at the end of the month. He's coming in at the end of the month to talk and and, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, just yeah. with, with everything that you're doing, what, what do you got next? A uh, violent nomad, the, the cool clothes, you got the GI Joe shirt on right now. Uh, <laughs> like, is there yeah. anything you're not doing, man? Um, you know, I, I stay in my lane. It may, it's hard for maybe people to see it, but it really is crisis management and, you know, hundred deli skills supports what I'm doing in the corporate world, the corporate world supports Hunter Deli skills. And then, you know, violent nomad is just apparel that came out of the books because in the books, I don't say Navy seals do this. I say violent nomads do this. And a violent nomad is a person who's self-sufficient, self-rescue oriented, you know, can, you know, basically be good to go alone. And if they need violence, they have the ability to flip that switch when necessary. That's that's really the violent nomad, and that's how I defined it in the books. And then people are like, hey, do you have a violent nomad shirt? I'm like, well, I guess I can put one together. And now it's kind of just – it's slow. You know, it's not like it's some big, you know, It's uh, pretty deal. big. It's pretty but big. Now, it's picking up each year. It gets a little more and more known, but I don't pay for ads. I don't do like my buddies man. they, I got a friend that's spending, you know, 40 grand a month on Facebook ads. Right. I mean, I, don't, I wish I'm I like, had that kind of money. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're doing really, really well. I would you know market I mean? the shit out of myself with that kind of money. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's where I fall on my face because I'm like, I'm not spending that. You know, it's like, I'll, I like Violent Nomad to be 
it's still kind of undergroundish, and it's it's cool like that. It's well, yeah. you're you're uh, you're subtle in your ads. Uh, your coffee mug that changes with the heat. It's a subtle <laughs> yeah. ad. Yeah, it's fun. What yeah. are you when this ends? You know, it's it's good. It, I think I think these days that picks up more than a lot that that you would think. Um, yeah, because I think people are looking for that because so many people have, and we don't need to say names, but they have so many of this and this and this companies. They're looking for that that one that hey, you don't have these. I know I got a buddy that got a shirt, and he's a really cool guy. He's he's uh, and then another guy at work that's not a really cool guy got the same shirt and i was like hey bro uh that guy's got that shirt and he was like fuck and he put a sweatshirt on and walked out of the office so he was like you know he so yeah. i i think it's uh i think it's great what you're doing let's tell everyone where they can find you how they can find you where they can help you out yeah it's pretty easy the whole ecosystem is at clintemerson.com um, so all the links to everything I got going are there to include the new podcast. Um, but Instagram really is my, my main platform. I've been trying to be better about YouTube. Uh, and that's about it. Yeah. You can just do Clint Emerson or hundred deli skills and you'll find me. There's way too much shit out there. <laughs> and where can they see at the spy museum? Where is that at? Yeah, the International Spy Museum is in D.C. Okay. They just opened up a new place. Um, I it's mean, it's the Clint beautiful. Emerson wing, but... Uh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, it's just like a little wall, but yeah, you can go by, take a picture, you know, post it. I won't repost it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, guys, it, really, go check this guy out. If you've never heard of him, which is very doubtful to me that you've never heard of this guy, but clintemerson.com, you got Escape the Wolf, 100 Deadly Skills, Violent Nomad. Pick up your books, pick up the puzzle book. I recommend that you pick up the audio book of Right Kind of Crazy because if you like this interview, that's exactly how the book is. It's it's dry and it tells you this is what I'm thinking, this is my emotion to it, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. I don't think anyone could have narrated as good as you. If you want more me, guys, you can check me out on Twitter at Doublespeak DJ, on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Remember, the best stories are true. This has been the show. That's Clint. I'm DJ. We'll catch you on the next one. We'll see you guys later. Bye. <laughs>